Today on the podcast, it wasn't like it was easy to access mental health care before, but now it's really, really difficult. We talk about how the pandemic just exploded some already existing cracks in our healthcare system and what all this has to do with the people who are known as COVID long haulers. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. On the Merits is devoted to featuring the best reporting coming out of the Bloomberg Law newsroom, crafted lovingly by our team of super nerdy and super awesome journalists. And I'd say some of the best work that we've done in the past year or so has been Lydia Wheeler's series on the policy implications of long COVID. This is the unofficial term given to the mysterious constellation of symptoms that some people suffer months after they first contract COVID-19. Lydia has written about how long COVID could upend the markets for health insurance and life insurance. Now, with her fourth in the series, she's taking a look at mental health care. Lydia says the U.S. healthcare system is not ready for the big wave of demand for mental health services that is coming and, to a large extent, has already arrived. But first, she explains to us exactly what long COVID is. So people who continue to have symptoms and side effects of COVID-19 are said to have what what they're calling long COVID. Um, And many of these people actually refer to themselves as COVID long haulers. So that's another nickname that they've given themselves. How common is this? Do we know how frequent this is for people who get COVID? Right. So Francis Collins, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health. Um, He told Congress last week that preliminary reports suggest that actually 30% of patients who recovered from COVID may have some form of a longer term health problem. Um, You know, these are early studies. There's a lot we still don't know about not only COVID-19, but specifically we don't know about long COVID. Um, But the people who are struggling the worst. Um, They have symptoms that range from mild to debilitating. Um, In some cases, these symptoms come and go day to day. Um, But the most common things that I've heard and that have been reported are, um, you know, people have shortness of breath. They have a persistent loss of taste and smell. I mean, we're talking this, the taste and smell has not come back and it's been more than a year. Um, People have had joint and muscle pain, heart palpitations. Some people say that they have a racing heartbeat um, that has, you know, brought them back to the hospital multiple times. Um, and a de- debilitating fatigue is what I hear often. You know, I talked to one one woman who said, like, she just has a really hard time getting out of bed in the morning. Um, and then also, you know, brain fog is another really common one. And they're describing it as brain fog. And what that means is, is difficulty remembering things and thinking clearly. Uh, I talked to one woman who said that she goes into a room um, and often forgets what she went into the room for. And this happens several times a day. I mean, I know that happens to me maybe like once a week. Well, I would say a little more than once a week for me. But yeah, it, that several times a day would be pretty unnerving. Right. It's, it's you know, it's frustrating for especially because, you know, these are people who were sick for a long time. And in some cases, these were people who had to be hospitalized and but not always. And, um, you know, they're trying to go back to work and they're having trouble, you know, getting through the workday and, and thinking clearly. And that impacts kind of all facets of your life. Do we have any theories as to why 
this happens to like a third of people who get COVID and the other two thirds, you know, make a full recovery and, and go back to their lives? Yeah, I, I think that's something that they're still trying to figure out, um, you know, as to why some people are affected by COVID worse than others. There have been preliminary studies that show that the vaccine might actually alleviate some symptoms of long COVID. Now, these are really preliminary. Um, you know, Francis Collins, as I mentioned, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, he said that that actually raises a question about whether there's a lingering infection in people who have long-term COVID. And so that was something that came out at the congressional hearing that I thought was really interesting. If like, we still don't know. It's like, are these people, do they actually have a lingering infection inside of them? And is that why maybe the vaccine's helping them? Um, you know, there's been reports about people with certain blood types get COVID worse than others. Um, but the thing about long COVID that's really interesting is that you might have had a mild case of COVID. Like your initial infection of COVID might have been like not that bad, you know? But then later you start to have all these side effects and symptoms. Um, and so it it really runs the gamut of if, if someone had it just a mild case or if someone had a severe case, both people, both types of those people could end up with long-term COVID. Well, let's move away from the science and start talking about the money. Um, specifically the health insurance industry, you have written a really fantastic series of articles about how long COVID is going to affect the health insurance industry. What are you hearing about this? Are you hearing from people who are saying, you know, that there's going to be an increased level of claims, but it's just going to be sort of a, a small or a moderate increase above what they normally would be? Or is this like a game changer? Like, is there going to be a, just a huge tidal wave of claims coming as a result of this? You know, I think the insurance companies will, you know, they're a little tight-lipped about, you know, what the future holds um, because there's still so much we don't know. So there's, uh, they're not willing to chat with me about what they expect to see. But health insurance experts say that this could be a major problem for insurance companies moving forward, particularly in the mental health, you know, case or, or mental health space, I should say, um, because our current healthcare system, health law scholars say and health experts say, is, is ill-equipped to meet the growing demand uh, for this type of care. And that health insurance companies, they already have kind of a long history of discriminating against mental health claims. Um, and they, you know, there's issues with not only a lack of providers, but a lack of, of providers of in insurance networks. And we know that, you know, people who had COVID are, are having mental health issues in addition to their physical symptoms. Uh, a recent study um, found that a third of, of COVID survivors were diagnosed with a neurological or psychological condition six months after being infected. Um, and 17.4% of those people had some sort of anxiety disorder. And so we're seeing more prevalence of depression, anxiety. Some people are having PTSD. Uh, they're dealing with grief, not only if they lost a family member, but some of these people now have some condition where they're disabled and that that is a, a that's a grief period that you need to go through because they're no longer who they were or the same person they were before they got covid-19 um so i mean the need for mental health care uh, as you wrote in your most recent story is skyrocketing as a result of covid and it sounds like the health insurance industry and the way we pay for health, mental health care has not caught up at, at all that's right. Um, so, you know, the 
the federal government did a couple things when COVID first struck is they really, they, they relaxed some rules around telehealth that really allowed people to seek mental health treatment online. Um, and that has made an improvement in, in ability to access care. But, you know, health scholars basically say that they're worried that, you know, some of the flexibilities won't continue um, once the public health emergency ends. Um, so they're really concerned that people could get cut off from these type of treatments. A lot of insurance companies he said, you know, we'll cover this free of cost. Um, people aren't sure if that will continue after the fact. So, but explain to me, how, you know, there was a big, a lot of talk, maybe I think it was like a decade ago or longer about uh, parity with for mental health care, where, uh, you know, there were laws around this saying, you know, that health insurance companies had to treat mental health care more or less the same as they did for other types of care. What what happened to, to that situation? I, wouldn't that take care of this? You would think. So that there is the Mental Health Parity Act, um, and it requires individual and small group employers to cover, as you said, um, mental health care at the same level that they cover physical care. But that... That law does not apply to large employer plans, which is where most people get their health insurance. Um, and so even under the Affordable Care Act and under the Men- Mental Health Parity Act, there's nothing that requires a large group employer, which is an employer with 50 plus employees, to cover mental health treatment. Now, I will say most of them do. Um, they offer some level of treatment. And, and if they do, they offer that care. It has to be you know, in parity. But there's nothing that requires them to cover mental health at all. Also, you know, health insurance experts say that, you know, it's really hard to measure what's in parity between physical and mental health. Um, you know, and another problem is, is that, you know, even if an insurance plan has what they claim is a wide network of providers, and sometimes, you know, they'll say that we have this many providers in network. Well, it's hard to compare with physical health because they don't they don't separate them out into subspecialties um, like they do the physical health care. So it's hard to compare the two. Also, a lot of health insurance will offer kind of um, cheaper plans that have skimpier coverage um, to make it more affordable. And so therefore, you know, people in their health and, you know, that, that accept those plans don't have access to their broad range of providers. Uh, another thing that's coming up as a problem because there is such a demand for mental health treatment, you know, I, I've talked to a couple long haulers who have gone in and, and, and tried to just, you know, call, like go down the list in their insurance network and try to find somebody and nobody is accepting new patients. Um, and part of the problem also is that insurers don't reimburse providers at the rates that providers are charging. So mental health providers don't want to take insurance. They'd rather just be paid out of pocket um, because they have issues with the insurance company being willing to reimburse them what they think they're worth. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because that sort of gets at, um, you know, it's not just about paying for mental health care. It's also about finding and accessing mental health care. And that can be really overwhelming, Um, you know, especially, you know, I talked to some mental health providers, um, one woman that works as a mental health provider at a a community clinic in um, the Compton area of Los Angeles, which has been hit extraordinarily hard by COVID. And she said that her patients like to tell them she has people that come to the community clinic that have insurance. I mean, this is a community clinic that, that cares for people who don't have insurance, but she says she gets people with insurance that are like, I need treatment. And she's basically has to say, I'm sorry, you have to go through 
your insurer. But to tell people that they have to look through this long list of provider and start calling down the list can feel overwhelming and also can be a really big chore for someone who's still struggling with physical symptoms of COVID. You know, this mental health provider told me like, the thing about mental health is that you need an appointment now. You need you need mental health treatment. You need care now. All right. Finally, let's uh, talk about whether this situation will change uh, and, you know, change at the legislative level. Uh, last year, there was a uh, in the midst of the uh, covid pandemic, there was legislation, bipartisan legislation proposed in the Senate uh, that would address the telehealth issues that you talked about for mental health care. Uh, that didn't get passed. What are the legislative prospects um, for this Congress, you know, for the rest of this year and next year? Do you think that we'll see a major legislative change for the way that mental health care is delivered post-COVID? Potentially. I think that's something that advocates are pushing for because, like I said, they're really concerned that the flexibilities that have been um, given for uh, telehealth for, for mental health care uh, will eventually go away after the public health emergency. So I think we're going to see a large push for there to be some sort of legislative solution to this. Um, you know, the the bill that was introduced last year um, would require insurers to cover mental health and substance use disorder treatment um, through telehealth at the same rate um, and cost sharing as treatment that's provided in person. Um, it's possible that that bill might have a better chance, you know, as we continue with this. Um, but so far, it doesn't seem like it's getting much uh, traction. Action. You know, there, California, however, recently uh, passed a law that some uh, health scholars actually think should serve as a model for federal legislation. Um, that law requires insurers to cover all mental health and substance use disorder treatment um, and to cover it out of network at no additional cost if a patient, say, can't find a provider in their insurance network that's in their area or can't find uh, an, a provider that has a readily available appointment slot. All right. Well, that was Lydia Wheeler, a reporter on uh, Bloomberg Law's Health Desk. Lydia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Jessica Coombs, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. That's B as in Believe it or not, I'm actually taking next week off. So I'll see you two weeks from today. Until then, thanks for listening. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.